All right, have a seat. Good morning. Second hour, how's it going? Great. It's just you and me, man. It's just, just it's always just you and me. So, all right, you guys ready? Um, well, you may or may not know, but most of the New Testament, like when you open the Bible, most of the New Testament is someone else's mail. I mean, that's just the basic definition of what it is. The writings that are in uh, there are just letters from one person to another, sometimes from one person or a group of people to a church somewhere else in another city during the first century. And so when we listen to the New Testament being read like we just did, or when we read it on our own, what you're doing, what I'm doing, is that we are reading someone else's conversation, at least one side of it, which kind of makes it difficult to figure out what's going on. And what we just heard uh, read from April this morning is a section of a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a church community in a Greek city called Corinth. And it's a, it's a real place. It was a real place. It had real people living in real times in history. And that means that the letter is not some proverbial whatever. It has a setting. It has a purpose. Uh, when Paul wrote it, it, it's trying to, there's an agenda there. There's some things he wants to accomplish through that. And it's easy for us not to see that because there's chapter headings and verse headings and small verses, big numbers and things like that uh, to help guide us through the letter, none of which we ever do in our own letters. Although it might be cool to start your Monday tomorrow with an email that has chapter headings and verse numbers. I don't know, uh, but no one writes like that. So it's just a letter. And one of the things that Paul was addressing in his letter uh, to this church was the subject of and the challenge for the people in that church to live in harmony with each other. For the church family to be just that, to be a family. And the, it's, a, it's an interesting text because there's a whole profound section of the letter just before the passage we heard read this morning. There's a whole profound section uh, that deals with unity and togetherness and amidst you know, a great natural diversity of people. And so Paul, like if you read it, it's just back up in chapter 12, it's just like the whole chapter we find Paul just sort of waxing profoundly uh, on the ins and outs of unity for the church to lead the way in the world uh, in building bridges between races and genders and ethnicities and socioeconomic categories. Kind of this like cultural, social, relational mashup of a community is basically what Paul is pushing. And that's a tall order, because most of us, if we're honest, we'd just rather sort uh, with people who are like us. But apparently, the church has been commissioned to go upstream in this area, to be um, different, to push against the walls of our own comfort zones, and to build a kind of alternative community of people who, even though we may all be different, and we are, uh, that somehow we all share something together, that we're all somehow one. And that sort of project, which again is something the church is called to do, that sort of project is not really possible without this driving force of a divine kind of love between people. So it makes sense that Paul, in chapter 12 of this letter to the, the church in Corinth, he's again, he's waxing on uh, and off, wax on, wax off. Okay, so he's, he's waxing on and on about unity and togetherness amidst diversity, it just makes sense that he would encore that section with another section about love, about the love between people. So in a very practical sense, even though this passage is about love and it's pretty poetic and all of that, it's really a street-level text about our day-to-day -day ordinary 
friendships that we all have. Don't be thrown off by the fact that this passage is always just basically read at weddings. We never read it anywhere else except at weddings. I'm doing a wedding in Birmingham, Alabama this afternoon. I will read that text. It's my neighbor's wedding. (laughs) She literally knocked on my door three months ago, like nine o'clock at night. And uh, there I am in my Snoopy pajamas. And uh, she opens the the door and there she is. And she's like, you're a pastor, right? I mean, that's how it started. And so, uh, (laughs) yes, I, I am. Thank you. Um, so we're doing their wedding, it's going to be great, and we're going to read that text, and it's, it's appropriate, because obviously there's love uh, being uh, displayed and shared between two people, and it's a good text for that, but when Paul wrote it, it wasn't written specifically for weddings, it was written for us to apply to our everyday friendships, so this is a very relational text, and it invites us, all of us, to uh, apply it, and to learn from it as we apply it. Uh, to our relationship. So the verse we're looking at this month, we've just taken really the summary verse for the whole thing. It's this right here, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And last week we looked at that first section that says that love bears all things. And if you missed that, just catch up online. But basically it was just that the kind of love that God calls his people to is a love that's very safe. To bear all things is to protect and we ought, to sort of have, we ought to have this love for one another where the other people feel safe with us. They feel safe when they're around us. That when we say we love them, that there's safety in that. Today I want to look at this, that love believes all things. Say this with me. Love believes all things. Now one version says that love always trusts. Now this one takes some work because what it sounds like it's saying is that love is naive, that love is blind, that love is unaware of danger, and that it doesn't have a healthy sense of what's safe and unsafe, and that it will believe anything. And that's kind of what it says, at least in English, and this is where translations can let you down. So let's just do some technical stuff here. The word for believe here in the text, the Greek word here is the word pisteo. Say the word pisteo. And it comes from the great word pistis. Can we just get excited about that word? Isn't Greek fun? Okay. Isn't Greek borderline profanity? Uh, sometimes. Okay. Ha <laughs> ha, theological humor. Uh, lost on everyone. <laughs> Thank you. But it comes from the word pistis, which means uh, faith, belief, or trust. All words that are pretty familiar to us because we're in a church building. And it's things like faith and belief and trust that we talk about a lot, but those things are essentially, and it's sort of paradoxical in the sense, but they're, they're somewhat rooted comfortably in mystery. Like faith and trust and belief are okay with not seeing the whole picture. That's why we give it that language. To have faith in something is to not have all the answers, but to go forward anyway. One New Testament letter frames faith this way. Faith, and I put the Greek in there so you can see it, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things, what? Not seen. So this is a wonderful definition of what faith is. If people ask you, what what is faith? You can confidently say, well, it's kind of messed up. It's we have all this assurance and stuff we can't see. (laughs) We're crazy, right? That's pretty much what that means. Uh, It doesn't make, I love this definition because it doesn't make light of the fact that we can't always see fully what we believe in and Uh, Also, this definition of faith doesn't even pretend that faith isn't weird, right? 
instead it's saying, oh yeah, so faith is this thing where I actually carry around a sense of certainty about things that I'm not totally certain about because I haven't seen them yet. But don't get confused. We do this all the time. In relationships, it's, it happens all the time. When someone says, I love you, when someone says, I do, when someone says, I'll be there for you, you're putting faith in that. So we do it all the time. When you turn the key, there's faith that it'll start. I mean, we all practice faith at some level. So it's not completely crazy to base a lot of major decisions on a faith in something or someone. We all do it. But the other thing here is, uh, because we're not altogether certain and yet we believe, that's why the word hope is in there. Hope is what we employ when the answers aren't always in front of us. Like, I hope, that's what I'm hoping for. Hope is what we do when we're faced with uncertainty. So what the writer is saying here is that faith has a kind of vision beyond what it can fully see. It has a set of eyes that doesn't always take things at face value, and that's a really big thing here as we move forward uh, in this reflection on this text, to lo- that love believes all things. There's something in here about the fact that this kind of faith, this kind of belief, is not based just on what I see, but it goes further than that. And there's a kind of hope that there's better, or that better things will come. Faith is not cynical. Like, that's really hard for us. Faith is not, it has no cynicism in it, because hope is central to it. When hope is central to anything, cynicism is pushed out. And so, what does this have to do with our text today? Let's back it up. Love believes all things. Remember that this is about relationships, and remember that this is not a call to be naive and unaware of toxicity and danger that can be present in some of our relationships. Those things are certainly true. They're certainly present. All of us have relationships that have those components. And the thing is, when we run into those things in our relationships, when we're burned by somebody, when it's toxic, when it's not encouraging, they can, those experiences can, over time, they can weaken our desire uh, to love others. They can also weaken our desire to be vulnerable to others. Experienced pain in relationships is a big barrier in future relationships, period. If you go to counseling, I'm just going to save you money, that's what they do. I mean, you should go, but I'm just saying, that's what they do. 80 bucks an hour, whatever it is, they're basically finding out where the pain is. And how is that, in terms of relationships, that is, how is that impacting the trust and the love that you are trying to find in your current relationships? Experienced pain is a big barrier in future relationships. It makes us skeptical, it reshapes how we trust people, and we end up guarding our hearts uh, with barriers of cynicism and doubt. Like, that's the thing. And so sometimes what people do is they run from that. They run from love, they just shell up, and they stay away from it. But we're kind of stuck here because love still calls us to make a choice. There's still a choice that we have to make in all of our relationships, painful or not, and we really can't avoid it. So to help, to help us understand this, I've got a four-slide quote from C.S. Lewis because it takes that long for him to get a sentence out, if you're familiar with him. But, uh, but check this out. It's so, it's so good, and it comes from his book, The Four Loves. Uh, and this is what he says. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. Can I get an amen there? Just a few of you. First service was like, I don't know. I love my family. Um, 
He goes on to say, if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. I love it. Uh, Wrap it carefully. It starts to get good here. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. It's getting good. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. I mean, it took him a while to get there, but that's it, right? It's, it's, love is just dangerous. There are things that happen. Pain is present, and it will happen to us. So Paul isn't talking about a love that's not smart enough, that's too dumb to stay away from trouble, that comes with all relationships. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually talking about a love that knows exactly what it's getting into, and yet carries with it a kind of hopeful vision, a faith, a belief that sees beyond what it sees, which in relationships is simply imperfection. So Paul isn't talking about a blind love. Again, that's just lust. Lust doesn't see the problems. Lust just has a mission. But this kind of love between friends and family is a love that knows exactly what it's getting into. It knows exactly that there's going to be problems. It knows exactly that we're not perfect. And I just, you know, let's just be honest today. We all look great. You look great. Saw you coming in. You look nice. Uh, but let's be, let's be honest. All of us are messed up to some degree. Would you agree with that? Thank you. One person agrees. So beneath, beneath whatever it is that we look like, beneath that there are things about us, each of us, that if other people knew they would be frightened. And we hide that very well. But we're all, we all struggle. We all have failings. And I love how the Scriptures from cover to cover are never in denial. There's never once the Scriptures are in denial of how hard it is for us to live life well. In fact, they're very hyper-aware of that reality and that struggle. And part of the message of the cross, part of the gospel story, is that God, thank God, doesn't require us to be living images of perfection. In fact, that quite frustrates Him. When God comes to us, He sees what really is, but He also sees uh, something other than what we normally see in ourselves. One example of this, and there are are many of these, but one example of this is God, uh, the story of God calling Isaiah to be His prophet, to be His voice in Israel. Of course, it's found in the Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah, but just a couple of texts here about the situation. So, God shows up in the temple. Isaiah is doing his thing. God shows up, and this is how Isaiah records the experience. And the foundations of the thresholds, thresholds, thresholds. There we go. Shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, "Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people." of unclean lips. So we'll just leave this here for a moment. What I find interesting is that Isaiah's working in the temple. He's in church. God shows up, and what Isaiah doesn't do is he doesn't Instagram the moment. He doesn't tweet the moment. 
He doesn't celebrate the moment. He doesn't, like, he doesn't feel special, right? I mean, God really moved in my life today. I feel special. I feel better than you. I feel more spiritual. He doesn't feel that way at all. The first thing he thinks, the first thing that happens is that God shows up and Isaiah basically says, oh, that's what he, that's what, that's the Hebrew. It's not, but it could be. All right. But that's what he says. He says, whoa, whoa. I shouldn't be in here. I'm lost. I feel lost. That's what he says. For I'm a man of what? Unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I love that the first thought that Isaiah has is not how special this moment is, but how sinful he is. Are you with me on this? this? His first reaction is not, this is so amazing, it's I have to get out of here. And so this is his state of, you know, his self-assessment when God shows up. And a few things happen in between there, and then he records this next. Speaking of God, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Now this is all a build-up for God to call Isaiah to be his prophet. And every single story of God calling someone to do something for him in the scriptures is basically like this. The person being called just cannot see past his or her own spiritual or emotional or relational failings. They can't. Every time. Read the story of Moses being called uh, to free the people of Israel from slavery. Like, he makes excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse, and it's all based on the guilt. For Moses, it's based on the guilt that he murdered a guy, and he's just living in the hills. Like, he's just trying to die alone. And God shows up and calls him, and Moses is like, "Uh, no, it's not going to happen. I cannot be your man. And again, it's all based on the guilt of their current state of life. But these stories, like Isaiah's or Moses's or Jeremiah's or all these different callings, These stories tell us this greater story that God sees beyond what is, and He sees the best of what could be with each of us. So what does this have to do with love believing all things in our day-to-day relationships? Because maybe you're thinking, that's that's all great with the Hebrew and the profanity, but what am I going to do? What do I do at work? What do I do with my home? What do I do with my friendships? Well, it's basically this. When love believes all things... It sees the best in all people. No, that's pretty much it. When Paul says love believes all things, it's just it's about a love that is first a love that works hard to see the best in others. It believes that whatever damage has been done, that whatever the ruins may be in a person's life, that we see more than that in them. People to us are never the sum of their failures. That we see the best in them and we see the best ahead of them. These are the eyes of Jesus. We talk about having the hands and the feet of Jesus all the time, but we must also have the eyes of Jesus. Does that make sense? That when we are in relationship with anybody, that we see the best in them. Again, this is not lust. This is not missional in the sense that I'm trying to get something out of this relationship. No, this is just about wanting to see renewal and transformation and health in a person's life in spite of who they are, 
And somehow we have those eyes that we can see that. Now on the receiving end, this is what we all want. Because right about the moment we think, well, that's just not possible, it just, it, the, the, the dilemma is this is what we want for us. All of us want to know that the people in our lives see the best in us, that our friends and family don't find joy in our mistakes, or they don't find joy when we fail, they don't find joy in our destructive behavioral patterns, and that they don't give up on us when we fail. That's what we all want, but instead they still see us as someone made in God's image and that someone who is capable of being redeemed and transformed and renewed. Like, we want that in our life. That's what we all want. That's what you want. That's what I want. I don't want to be prejudged or sentenced based on my failures. I don't want to be the sum of my mistakes, and neither do you. I don't want to be in relationships where people aren't blind to my failings, but who are actually quite aware of them. Like, that's the thing. Like, if you, if you and I have friends that always agree with us, always, someone in the relationship is not telling the truth. So I'd rather have people that know who I truly am and who aren't blind to that and who, who are actually quite aware of those failings and who not only see beyond those things, but they help me see beyond those things as well. This is what it means that love believes all things. I don't want to be in friendships that keep airtight records of my mistakes. I do that already. I don't need you to do that for me. Nobody does. And that's what Paul says just before our text. He's like, love keeps no record of wrongs. But it kind of does. If it's not the kind of love that he's talking about, it does. But I need to be in relationships that see beyond those things, that help push me towards what God desires for me. Not relationships that give up and walk out. And so that's the challenge in this text. Love believes all things. Is that somehow we manage our relationships that way. That you and I do exactly what we will want done for us, which is we each work hard to be less cynical and more hopeful. And we all work hard to see beyond what currently is in a friend's life and to see what could be. And at the core of this, and this is where it gets real difficult, because this is more of just about a posture than it is something you do. But at the core of this is simply about, it's about wanting the best for others. And again, that's hard to define because that's just a posture. Like, I want the best for you. I want you to want the best for me. But that, that's, that's what it's going to come down to. Like, that we truly want the best for others. That might be the gut check for this reflection this morning. Simply the question, is that what I want? Do I want the best for you? Do I want... Do I want the best for others? Do you want the best for me? That's a tough question because sometimes the answer is no. Because victory, victory has a way of making us all jealous, but we all love it when people fail. Like that builds community somehow. Like we love that. Are you with me on that? People who are victorious, that just makes us mad, jealous. But failure, like that's, man, we, we can get together on that, especially when it's not me. And usually when someone else fails and I like revel in that, that's really about me feeling less of a failure. And when you get excited about people's failures, it's the same thing. It's just that, oh, cool, someone else, someone else has been exposed before me, and that just makes me feel good. I feel less like a failure when someone else fails in front of me. But the question that this love believes all things challenge is raising for us is, do I want the best for others? 
And if I had to be honest with you, the truth is, I don't always want the best for others. You know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes I just want, I want people to get what they have coming. I want that too, and so do you. You want it. But I need help there, you need help there, we all need help in that. And I don't know how you get there other than you just keep, maybe this is a thing that we repeat in our relationships, that we trust, that we trust that it's that better is possible. We trust that redemption is possible. We trust that renewal is possible. And we believe beyond what we see. So whether you're married or it's you and some roommates or it's just you and your coworkers, whatever the relationship world is for you, the question to sort of roll around in your head is do I want the best for these people or do I want the worst for them? In spite of what I see in their daily living, do I want the best for them? Am I hopeful or am I cynical? Someone, I read an article, it must have been last year, but it was a great article. It was about something completely different than this, but there was one line in there where uh, it said, never, never mistake cynicism for wisdom. And I had to sit back and think, gosh, I do that. Cynicism comes across as, that, as though I'm wise, but they're not the same thing. Wisdom is different. Wisdom is rooted in what God wants, not just for me, but for the world. And God wants the best for everybody. And so we all need help there. And we all need a Savior who looks at us and says, I, I, I see exactly who you are. I don't need a Savior who doesn't see who I am. I need a Savior who knows exactly who I am. And yet calls me beyond that and believes that better is possible. And every week we do communion together. We've saved it till the end today, and I want to set it up uh, in, in a couple of ways for us. There's a lot of things that communion can mean. You know, the bread and the juice and the, the tradition and the things that we say and do, it, it can mean a lot of things. And the communion and... Uh, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever it is that you're familiar with when we talk about it, it is a weekly callback to this challenge that all of us are unfinished and always in the works, that every single one of us carries the need for not just a Savior who sees beyond our failings, but for a community that sees more in us than our failings. And before the communion is anything, and it's a lot of things, and it can be a lot of things, and it means a lot of things, but before it is anything at all, it is first an admission. Like when you and I eat the bread and drink from the cup, what we're participating in is this corporate announcement that says, we need God to lead us out of this. Communion is an Exodus story. In fact, it comes from the Exodus story. It's rooted in the Passover, which became a feast to celebrate God's willingness and ability to pull us out of slavery. And in this case, the slavery of failings, of sin, of the things that nobody knows about. And all the turns in the Exodus story hinge on those things like slavery and crying out and God's heartbreaking and release and freedom and deliverance. So the bread and the juice, they define community, yes, but how? 
When we eat it, what does it say about community? When we drink the cup, what is that really saying about community? That we belong together? That we're all in agreement? That we're all part of the same congregation? Maybe. A picture of all those things is certainly being rendered as we move to the tables. An announcement of belonging and community and membership is certainly being spoken as we hear and accept the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Eating and drinking with others is a sign of acceptance and inclusion, and all of those things are in view as we line up at the tables. But before communion is any of those things, it is a tool of exposure. Because perfection, as you know, I hope you know. If you don't know, I'm sorry, but it's not possible. And in the seven days that have passed since we all stood in these same lines last week, failure has probably done its job of reminding us of that very truth. And to say it bluntly, if we stand in line today to take communion, we are guilty. To stand in line is to admit that I'm guilty. Communion as admission, that's what it is before it is anything else. That we need God. That we need an exodus. And we need a God who will pull us from whatever we're in, not because of anything other than He sees and wants the best for His world. And I think it's nice to share that with others. As there is much healing in community, there's much healing in doing this together. And so when you stand in line today, think on those things. Think about communion as admission, as exposing who we are, who, who we need, which is Christ. And so to get us there, I'm going to have you stand and we will speak the Lord's Prayer together as a way to move into communion. So if you would stand. And then the instructions for communion are quite simple. As soon as we say amen, you can move to one of the four tables. And the way we've structured today is this, is in this way. Uh, once you take the bread, once you take the juice, you're welcome to remain in here and sit and listen and reflect, or you can go home. So it's one of those things where as soon as we say amen and you take communion, our gathering today is officially finished. We want it to end with the Lord's Supper, and then you're welcome to do as you wish. You can take it at the tables, take it at your seat, uh, but mostly just... Spend some moments reflecting, and uh, if you need to go, you can go. If not, you can hang out uh, with others, both of which happened last service. So I think two people clapped for you at the end of it. It was kind of weird. Yeah, it was weird. So, <laughs> but you can do that too. So uh, let's speak these words that Jesus gave us in teaching us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.